One would hope that during these COVID times, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, would put a hold on making major decisions on the transport and dumping of highly radioactive nuclear waste, specifically the proposed so-called interim nuclear dump near Carlsbad, New Mexico. But then you hear that the NRC has moved ahead. And then one of the people who has been leading the fight against just such a step tells you, I think NRC is making an end run at this time, given the situation with COVID-19, to announce that our appeals are thrown out, to announce a deadline. We have called on NRC to have no deadline right now. The deadline should be when in-person public comment meetings can take place, not only in New Mexico, but along the transportation routes across the country. Any deadline short of that is an abuse of NRC's authority, given the pandemic we're all suffering right now. Well, when you understand how the COVID-19 smokescreen is being used to hide long-planned manipulations by the nuclear industry that put the lives of not only all New Mexicans, but citizens in 45 states along the transportation routes carrying canisters of high-level radioactive waste that puts them at the risk for an accident far in excess of what Chernobyl set loose upon the world, you realize that it just got much, much hotter in that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to burn through our lives, a special look at how it has been used as a smokescreen to cover up the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's throwing out of officially filed objections to Holtec International's proposed so-called interim nuclear waste dump in New Mexico. We have Kevin Camps, veteran nuclear waste dog watchdog for Beyond Nuclear, who interprets this latest move, explains all the reasons why this radioactive waste dump is a tragedy in waiting, and provides insights into how this moment, this time, can be harnessed to spark a larger public movement against nuclear. We'll also hear from Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, in an excerpt from a recent Zoominar on the global dangers of Space Force and plans to own and mine the moon and the asteroids. Plus, our COVID-19 nuclear update, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than anyone who supports nuclear wants you to know. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 28, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. 
Here's the latest COVID nuclear update. At the Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station, 45 miles from Phoenix, Arizona, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has given permission for the operators to work its employees 16 hours per day and as many as 86 hours per week. Well, tote that barge and lift that bell, prisoners. And as for nuke industry talking points, Exelon Corporation, operator of the largest U.S. nuclear fleet, says that this move allows for, quote, healthy workers to remain on site for more hours, reducing the need to bring in outside travelers and vendors. But of course, refueling of nuclear reactors, 54 of which are scheduled for this year, requires an influx of up to 1,600 outside workers, but there's no word of refueling being delayed or denied. Plant Vogel officials in Georgia say that 130 of their employees have tested positive for COVID-19, 29 workers are still awaiting results, and 305 workers have tested negative. That's 455 tests in a work population of 9,000. No word of COVID numbers from inside nuclear reactors because the NRC clamped down and refuses to give that information out. In Ontario, Canada, work at the Nuclear Waste Management Organization site in Ignace Wabagoon Lake has been put on hold as a result of COVID-19 concerns. The area had been identified as a potential site of an underground nuclear waste repository. The one spot of good nuclear news this week is that the Indian Point 2 nuclear reactor in New York, only 30 miles from Manhattan, will close down permanently on April 30th. That's Unit 2. The remaining Unit 3 is scheduled to close in one year on April 30th, 2021. We'll have a featured interview on that on next week's Nuclear Hot Seat. Activists are asking for an autopsy on the closed nuclear reactor. A detailed technical analysis of actual aged components extracted from Indian Point 2 and other shuttered reactors. Examining dead reactors would shed light on the safety status of the living reactors, those still in operation. And in Ukraine, as of Monday, April 27, firefighters continued to battle a series of fires in the exclusion zone surrounding the destroyed and highly radioactive Chernobyl nuclear power plant. The 3 million inhabitants of Kiev, approximately 45 miles away, literally suffocated under the thick fumes which have obscured the sky of the capital and saturated the air with fine dust. The problem is characterized as the most serious radiotoxic release since the 1986 disaster, and it's not over yet. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Leave it to the nuclear industry to look at COVID-19 as a growth opportunity, a means of making giant strides towards creating another invisible threat to our lives and our futures, nuclear radioactivity. You'll be hearing more about this in today's featured interview, but know that the story out of New Mexico is not the only place, the only way that the nukesters are seeking to make giant gains in their agenda while the rest of us are dealing with baseline survival during the pandemic. And mainstream media is not covering nuclear stories as a matter of course. Their resources, limited as they are these days, are going to COVID and stories of more immediate local interest. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. 
We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, and especially now with the COVID-19 impact on worker safety, reactor safety, public safety, and the nuclear industry's manipulative trickery during this time of fear and confusion. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can count on to continue to report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear COVID connection while not dropping the ball on other nuclear stories around the world. But I'll be honest, I really need your help right now if I'm to be able to keep this show going. There are monthly, quarterly, and annual expenses just to have the tools to produce, host, post, disseminate, and support the show. To keep things going, now more than ever, we need your help. The time to support us with a donation is right now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. Or click on the big green donate button to send a monthly $5 donation. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. On April 23rd, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the United States ruled in an astounding ruling that an application by Holtec International and the Eddie Lee County's Energy Alliance to store a massive quantity of highly radioactive irradiated nuclear fuel in southeastern New Mexico violates federal law. And yet, the NRC ruled that the unlawful provisions of the license application could be ignored and would not bar their approval. When my blood stopped boiling long enough at this latest outrage from the NRC, I knew the one person to call to get the full picture, Kevin Camps. He is the radioactive waste watchdog for Beyond Nuclear, and he specializes in high-level waste management and transportation, new and existing reactors, decommissioning, he is on a congressional watch team, he deals with climate change and federal subsidies. Kevin has been involved in the waste battle for decades now, as you'll hear from the breadth and depth and specificity of his information. I spoke with Kevin Camps on Monday, April 27, 2020. Kevin Camps, thanks so much for making yourself available to us on such short notice for Nuclear Hot Seat. Glad to be here. I just read the news that the NRC is going to allow or is planning to license a high-level radioactive waste dump in New Mexico. Give us the background on this, the circumstances, and then we'll get into what just happened and why it's so wrong. Sure. Well, the proposal by Holtec International and the Eddie Lee Energy Alliance is to turn southeastern New Mexico into the world's biggest high-level radioactive waste dump. And the quantities we're talking about are up to 173,000 metric tons. So to give folks an idea of how much that is, it's more than twice what exists in the United States in terms of commercial irradiated nuclear fuel. There's over 80,000 metric tons now. It's also two and a half times as big as the Yucca Mountain proposal in Nevada, which is limited to 70,000 metric tons. So it's a big monster. Uh, we've been fighting it for several years. And uh, yes, just last Thursday, the NRC did the dirty deed. They uh, have indicated that they are ready to license this thing, even though it violates federal law. Explain that federal law and where and how the violation is taking place. 
the federal laws that are being violated include the Nuclear Waste Policy Act of 1982 as amended, and also the Administrative Procedure Act. So the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, the violation is a provision that prohibits the U.S. Department of Energy from taking ownership of commercial irradiated nuclear fuel at an interim site if there is not a repository open and operating. There is no repository open and operating, and the Department of Energy has said there can't be until mid-century. They gave the year 2048. So despite that, uh, this illegal provision is in the Holtec license application, and we've been calling them on that for several long years now and informing the NRC that this is a violation of law. And the other law that the NRC is violating by allowing this to go forward is the Administrative Procedure Act, which simply says, in essence, federal agencies are not allowed to violate the law. <laughs> and that's what NRC is doing here. Much of this is predicated on Yucca Mountain being perceived as a legal functioning or soon to be functioning deep waste repository, which would make the repository in New Mexico, quote unquote, interim. Explain to us why that doesn't work in terms of Yucca, and Yucca at this point is primarily a fiction. Yeah. Um, when you add up all the environmental and environmental justice and other public interest groups who oppose Yucca, it's well over a thousand organizations, and that resistance has gone on for 33 years. So this amazing coalition, one of the biggest I know of in the environmental movement, is standing in solidarity with the state of Nevada and its residents, and especially standing in solidarity with the Western Shoshone Indian Nation, whose land Yucca Mountain is, by treaty right, the Treaty of Ruby Valley of 1863, signed by the U.S. government. So Yucca is not going to happen for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it is not consent-based. Obviously, it's a violation of law, namely the treaty. It's an environmental injustice. I mean, just think about the nuclear weapons testing fallout that the people of Nevada and those downwind have already suffered. So it's a non-starter. In addition to all that, it's scientifically unsuitable. It's gonna leak massively if it ever happens to go forward in the future, both into groundwater, which the Timbusha Shoshone Band uses drinking water downstream, as does one of Nevada's biggest agricultural communities called Amargosa Valley. And it's also gonna leak massively into the air in, in the form of uh, radioactive carbon-14, which is perhaps the most biologically significant radioactive isotope in terms of hazard because it has a 5,500 year half-life. That's 55,000 years or 110,000 years of hazard and it's carbon. So it goes everywhere in the life systems that carbon goes, which is everywhere in our bodies, in other um, living organisms and it does its damage there. So for a long list of reasons, yuck is not gonna happen and yet the NRC, in its draft environmental impact statement just published for the Holtec dump, Holtec itself and its environmental report, uh, the Department of Energy, they all assume that Yucca is going to happen, except it's not going to happen. So they can't assume that. And so that's another, you know, fatal flaw of this entire scheme is it's, it's premised on an impossibility. And uh, what that means is there's a real risk of the Holtec site becoming de facto permanent surface storage. And these containers are going to fail some day, some year, some decade, some century, some millennia, long before millennia. They're going to fail and release their contents. And if that happens at the surface, that's directly into the environment. 
That's catastrophic releases of hazardous radioactivity. Why now? Why do you think the NRC chose this time? Is it possible that they are trying to hide behind a smoke screen of COVID-19 while everybody's distracted with this? Did this just come up on the calendar or are they just so deaf to the whole argument that it to them when they come up with it? It's all of that. This proceeding goes all the way back to 2016 and that's when we began objecting to all of these things. I mean, we were talking about the legality, illegality of the Holtec site. There's a long list of problems with Holtec. It's another environmental injustice. So we've been raising a clamor against it since 2016, October 2016. They uh, talk about NRC's tone deafness to ghoulish proportions. When did NRC docket the Holtec license application to go forward? They did it on July 16th of 2018. July 16th is a day of infamy in New Mexico. It is the day that Trinity was exploded in 1945. It was the date when the Church Rock Uranium Tailings Dam burst, one of the biggest nuclear disasters you've never heard of in U.S. history because it happened upstream of Navajo communities who've suffered with it ever since. So they chose that day of all days to begin the whole tech licensing proceeding. A broad coalition intervened by the deadline of September 2018, and we've been duking it out ever since. Atomic Safety Licensing Board hearings in Albuquerque, January 2019, a rapid rejection by that licensing board in record speed to get rid of us, appeals to the NRC commissioners, which they've just largely rejected, entirely rejected in terms of Beyond Nuclear and a coalition called Don't Waste Michigan and others, Sierra Club and Baskin Oil were remanded back to the licensing board on a small number of contentions, which I expect the licensing board to make short shrift of, then it's over for them too. So now the appeals go to federal court. So the timing of NRC, the reason I mentioned their tone deafness of ghoulish proportions was they informed us at 4.59 p.m. Eastern on Earth Day, 50th anniversary, very suddenly out of the blue that they were about to vote on our appeals the next day at 11 a.m. in the morning talk about no notice. And so at 11 a.m. Eastern on April 23rd, they took all of a few minutes or less to say, yes, we vote against Beyond Nuclear's uh, contentions. What that does is it ends our NRC kangaroo court, and now we get to go to federal court. We have a 60-day deadline, and our appeal will go to the second highest court in the land, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It seems that anything that you did in connection with the NRC was doomed in advance to failure. Is this the orientation of the agency? Has it gone rogue? Has it always been this much against people and the environment? Largely, yes. Largely to entirely, yes. Uh, It's a rogue agency, nuclear rogues and crooks. Nobody really cares. That's what NRC stands for. Or to borrow one from Ian Zabardi of Native Community Action Council, no remaining credibility. And the reason that he was inspired to come up with that one was in the Yucca Mountain licensing proceeding, they let state governments that are pro-Yucca dump, like the state of South Carolina, counties in South Carolina, that want to get the waste out so they can make more and make money on it all, let them into the proceeding years late after the deadline. If Native Community Action Council, which miraculously, due to Ian's hard work, is an intervener, an official party in the NRC licensing proceeding, 
if they had shown up a nanosecond late, they would have been thrown out. So, you know, it depends on who you are in NRC's eyes. And they behave that way right now in the consolidated interim storage facility proceedings. What kind of schedule could proceed if they get this final license to go through for whole tech? How soon would we be facing the shipment of waste from all the various places it would be coming? Holtec has a very aggressive schedule, as does its sister project just 39 miles away called Waste Control Specialists Interim Storage Partners, another consolidated interim storage facility. So they're trying to turn that little neck of the woods in the southwest into the world's radioactive waste dump, or at least the United States radioactive waste dump. And it's a very aggressive schedule. I mean, in the next few years, they have a um, phase one, 500 containers that they would build within a couple years, and then they would be able to immediately begin shipments of containers that are licensed for transport. Is that a good idea? No, it's not a good idea. <laughs> there have been a lot of objections raised about the structural integrity of Holtec containers sitting still at reactor sites going zero miles per hour, let alone going 60 miles per hour down the rails. And you know, with incidents like the whistleblower revealed at San Onofre where they are nearly dropping containers. We don't know all the abuse these containers have suffered. We don't know the state of degradation of these containers. We do know that they um, have perpetrated large-scale quality assurance violations in their design and manufacture. We have known that, again, from whistleblowers like Oscar Shirani, going all the way back to January 2003, and the NRC has never rectified that problem. And there's such a you know, long history of this stuff. Holtec would have provided the containers at Skull Valley Goshutes Indian Reservation in Utah 10 to 20 years ago, and the NRC did approve that license, but it was stopped anyway with the leadership of people like Marjean Bull Creek, a traditional at Skull Valley Goshutes. And the NRC's rubber stamp on that license back in 2005, 2006, inspired me to come up with the Nuclear Racism Commission because it was such a blatant form of radioactive racism. And uh, that, that ruffled some feathers out at the NRC. And it also ruffle, ruffles feathers at the Nuclear Energy Institute when I say radioactive racism. But it used to be Native American reservations. They were targeting all of them at one point. Then they shortened the list to 60. Then they had a really short list of Mescalero Apache, which is in southeastern New Mexico. Uh, Skull Valley Goshutes in Utah. Um, of course, the Western Shoshone in Nevada. This time around, again, it's near, it's near Mescalero Apache, but this time around, it's Hispanic communities. And talk about an absurdity. The draft environmental impact statement, environmental justice section, the trick or the shenanigans that NRC pulled to decide that there's no environmental justice impact is they're comparing southeastern New Mexico's demographics to New Mexico's demographics, not to the country's demographics, Many of these Hispanic communities in southeastern New Mexico are majority Hispanic. And yeah, there's a lot of money in the Permian Basin because of the oil and the natural gas. Not everybody's sharing in that wealth. And so what you have is low income and people of color communities being targeted for a national high-level radioactive waste dump in the Permian Basin that already suffers significantly from not only oil and natural gas pollution, at a very large scale, but also suffers a long list of nuclear abuses, starting at Los Alamos in 1943, 
with Trinity in 1945. And now, you know, southeastern New Mexico hosts the waste isolation pilot plant. That's military plutonium disposal. They had a leak in 2014 that was supposed to be impossible. They also host Uranium Enrichment Corporation right there in Eunice, New Mexico. So the list is very long of nuclear abuses. This would be uh, a major abuse added on top of all that. It sounds like it would be a forever abuse because this stuff doesn't go away by itself. How do we stop this nightmare? If it's been stuck with the NRC and the NRC is so totally compromised, they don't even remember what they're supposed to be doing anymore. And now it's going to federal court. What is the procedure? What are the chances? What is the basis that you are going to be going forwards on? We have hopes that the three-judge panel that we draw at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is fair-minded and believes in rule of law. And if that's the case, then we are all set. Who knows what's going to happen? There are no guarantees. That is a part of the legal fight. I know that Don't Waste Michigan and others, which is a seven-group grassroots national coalition of environmental groups, environmental justice groups, they also plan to appeal aspects of their interventions um, because there are resource questions here and Don't Waste Michigan generated dozens of contentions. So I think they're going to choose their strongest cases, uh, one of which is going to be the transportation risks. So those are the legal battles to come. But another major battlefront now is the draft environmental impact statement that NRC just published on March 10th. We're facing a July 22nd deadline to get public comments in. We're going to need to break the record we set previously on this proceeding. We've generated tens of thousands of comments at the environmental scoping stage a couple years ago. We need to break that record this time around. And a part of that will be educating the country about these mobile Chernobyl risks and demanding that public comment meetings in person take place once safe to do so after the COVID-19 pandemic crisis has resolved somewhat or entirely, one hopes. And like you said, I think NRC is making an end run at this time, given the situation with COVID-19, to announce that our appeals are thrown out, to announce a deadline. We have called on NRC to have no deadline right now. The deadline should be when in-person public comment meetings can take place, not only in New Mexico, but along the transportation routes across the country. Any deadline short of that is an abuse of NRC's authority, given the pandemic we're all suffering right now. And remind people how many states are impacted by this transport. It's not just the ones that have nuclear reactors in them already. How many would be involved? At least 45 that we know of. Uh, NRC itself finally came right out and said it, that they were depending on the DOE's 2008 Yucca Final Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement which documents 45 states crossed by high-level radioactive waste shipments. And it's true, the further away from the Southwest you are, West Coast, East Coast, even Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, transport routes to Yucca Mountain, Nevada, or to Holtec, New Mexico, are identical or very similar. There comes a point in the country where they would have to turn one way or the other, either going to New Mexico or going to Nevada. But you know, under the Holtec plan, they did provide one single map in their license application. It only accounted for four reactors in the country, three at San Onofre, California, one at Maine Yankee. What about the other 115 reactors in the country? 
But what was very interesting was their export it to Yucca transport plans. They would go back through, of course, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma. That means those three places, at least, are getting hit coming and going with these shipments. And that's our point about consolidated interim storage. It makes no sense. It multiplies transportation risks for no good reason, except for a transfer of title and liability onto the Department of Energy, off of the ledgers of the industry, which generated this waste. They're scot-free now. Now it's the taxpayer's problem. So all this is about shifting liability so that the industry can walk away with its hands metaphorically clean, at least in their minds, as well as their money intact while they, we get the waste and we get the expense of it, meaning the taxpayers. And it would be a huge public relations victory for the industry, which has always said the waste is not a problem. Of course, it's a problem. But they will say, see, it's solved. It's going to New Mexico. Then it'll go to Nevada. Let us make more. And NRC, of course, spoke on this question most recently in 2014 with their continued storage of spent nuclear fuel rule, which used to be called the nuclear waste confidence rule. But we called it a nuke waste con game so many times that they had to change the name. So this is the NRC's nuke waste con game, which tells industry, make as much waste as you want. It's all going to work out fine. You mentioned that we need to make comments. Where do they need to be? And then I have a question for you about how we can learn what we should be saying. The most straightaway place to send the comments is an NRC email address. And I'm going to get that up at the top of beyondnuclear.org. And we will be circulating this action alert often in the weeks and months ahead. So that NRC email address is the best place to send them. They also have a regulations.gov web form. But I kid you not, during the environmental scoping stage two years ago, it worked less than half the time. That's why I'm very concerned about regulations.gov, at least uh, when NRC is using it. So we're going to emphasize that NRC email address. There's also a snail mail address. There's going to be a national webinar conducted by NRC. And my attitude is, Thank you so much. We will take part. If that webinar were to last for 79 days long, then you would have uh, met our requested 199-day public comment period. But that public comment period cannot begin until this pandemic is over. So we'll take everything NRC has given us, but we're going to keep on demanding a 199-day public comment period and two dozen public comment meetings all over the country. And the reason for those figures is that's what we forced the Department of Energy to give us 20 years ago on Yucca Mountain. Holtec is two and a half times bigger than Yucca Mountain. We should be allowed two and a half times the public comment period, the number of public comment meetings. But we're being reasonable and only asking for the Yucca standard. And we're going to fight them every inch of the way until we get it. That's terrific. Of course, I will be listing all of the links on this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Now, you said that the NRC is going to be having a webinar. I'm wondering what the thinking is about putting together a webinar from Beyond Nuclear, from any of the other organizations, to come up with a discussion, but that would give us, say, in PowerPoint, what our talking points could be and should be. In other words, to educate those of us who are already concerned about these issues and can be brought into alignment with them and 
Give us the tools that we need so that we can be a force. Because I know that there are listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat who would relish the opportunity to jump on board with the best information possible. So what, if any, plans are there to have a digitalized webinar, Zoominar meeting that would allow us to learn what we need to learn to be of best service on this? That's a really great idea, something we need to do. And I'll talk to colleagues about making it happen. Uh, what has already happened is already there are sample comments circulating, talking points that people can use verbatim or can edit and submit in their own name. And uh, of course, when we mix it up that way, when we personalize the comments, NRC has to treat them with more care because they're different and uh, count them as individual comments. So if you read the official history of the environmental scoping stage two years ago, they tried to dismiss tens of thousands of comments as a single comment because people simply sign their names. Actually, this was tens of thousands of Americans, right, making this comment in solidarity, and they tried to treat it as a single comment. So that's the cynicism of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So um, we do have sample comments. They're in circulation. I'm going to get more and more of those posted at Beyond Nuclear's website. I know NEARS is as well. There are groups in New Mexico working on this, like Nuclear Issue Study Group, to name but one. And uh, we will, you know, be singing from the same song sheet as a movement. That's what we need. Anything you provide, I will make it available through Nuclear Hot Seat. Great. One of those uh, sample comments, so to speak, is a unified national demand to members of Congress. You know, every American, unless you live in the District of Columbia or Puerto Rico, you have a U.S. representative who can vote on the floor, and uh, two U.S. senators, those are the people we need to get through to on this demand for public comment meetings along the transportation routes, because NRC would be ill-advised to blow off members of Congress, because that will cost them in terms of budgeting and appropriations, and they know that. So when a member of Congress demands or requests a public comment meeting in their district or in their state, they often get it. And that's how we did it with the Department of Energy, it's how New Mexico's united congressional delegation at the federal level has won five public comment meetings in person. They are not backing down. And that's what we got to do for everybody to talk to their members of Congress, have them contact the NRC, demand a public comment meeting in your state, in your district. And guess what? Interim storage partners, waste control specialists is only two months behind the whole tech proceeding. So if NRC holds a public comment meeting in San Luis Obispo, California, then that's for Holtec. Then there needs to be another one someplace else in California having to do with interim storage partners, waste control specialists. You know, this just might be the rallying call that our movement needs in order to really expand it beyond where it has been so far because with 45 states being involved in the transport with all of us being potentially impacted by this illegal move to inappropriately store high-level nuclear waste with containers that if they're the same size as the Holtec containers that are used at San Onofre each one of them contains the equivalent of a Chernobyl's worth of radioactivity and that is what we will be up against all of these, as has been dubbed, I believe, by Beyond Nuclear, Mobile Chernobyl. Mobile Chernobyl, dirty bombs on wheels, floating Fukushimas in terms of the barred shipments that are proposed. There are barred shipments on the West Coast, on the East Coast, 
around Florida, on rivers, on the Great Lakes. These are for reactors that lack direct rail access. So one option is to barge the waste to the nearest railhead where it would then be offloaded onto a train. The only other option is heavy haul truck, monster truck in front, perhaps even a monster truck in back, 200 wheels in between. These giant Holtec containers are huge. They are a 37 pressurized water reactor irradiated nuclear fuel assemblies. I believe it's 190 tons all told. And so the state of the rails in this country are not ready for that. One example, back in 2003, it was not irradiated nuclear fuel, but it was a reactor pressure vessel going from Big Rock Point, Michigan, down to the Carolinas, to Barnwell, South Carolina, for burial in a leaking low-level radioactive waste dump in an African-American area. And so what happened was this 290-ton uh, shipment caused, in its wake, derailments on the rails in Michigan, and in the Carolinas. It damaged the rails as it passed through, and then the next train that came along derailed in its wake. That was 290 tons, and these Holtec containers are 100, 190, but there could be multiple Holtec containers on the same train. So this is going to do a number on the rails. So it's up to us to do a number on Congress and make our voices heard where it can potentially make a difference. We will stay in touch with you to find out any further information, how people can get their talking points, and when this Zoominar is put together for us to learn more. We can all pile on and learn it and respond. Because if this is not a call to action in the movement to end nuclear, I don't know what is. Well, you know, in Germany, the uh, anti-waste consolidation fight at Gorleben, Germany, was the heartbeat of the German anti-nuclear movement beginning in the late 1970s, and it continues till now. And it's what led to the German nuclear power phase-out, because, you know, the Green Party got it from the start, you know, a founding plank was anti-nuclear. For the Social Democratic Party, it took Chernobyl, but then they got it. So by the year 2000, after having lived under the Chernobyl cloud, with the drumbeat of these annual massive protests against consolidated interim storage, blocking shipments physically through nonviolent civil disobedience actions, blocking the roads physically by the 10,000 number, locking themselves to train tracks, the Social Democrats finally got it by the year 2000. It took the Conservative Party to live through not just the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe, but the political fallout in Germany after it. Two weeks after Fukushima began in March 2011, there were regional elections in Germany in places like Stuttgart and Bremen, where the Conservative Party had ruled since the 1950s. They lost those regional elections to the Green Party. It was a direct response to what was happening in Fukushima. And all of a sudden, Merkel and the other conservatives got it. They had to take an anti-nuclear position or their political days were over. So now Germany is united politically anti-nuclear. They're phasing out nuclear power by 2022. And it is thanks to the amazing movement at Gorleben, Germany against consolidated interim storage. So yeah, we need to match that here in this country and it could be a key to ending nuclear power in the United States. We'll do our best to support you and make that happen. Kevin Kance of Beyond Nuclear, thank you so much for taking the time on a very busy day to speak to us here at Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me.
Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. If you haven't already, I urge you to go to their website, beyondnuclear.org, and at minimum, sign up for the newsletter. They're an excellent source of information and insights, and rarely a week goes by that this show is not in some way indebted to them for their work. Now, another aspect of the nuclear insanity that keeps making progress when we're not looking is the war machine and the use of all manner of nuclear technology in space. That's where our next speaker comes from. Bruce Gagnon is co-founder and coordinator for Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, found online at spaceforpeace.org. That's the number four, space4peace.org. On April 29th of this year, Bruce took part in a Zoominar, War in Space, Weaponizing the Final Frontier. And I found what he spoke about important to our understanding of what's happening in these COVID times, not just on Earth, but what is being planned for and followed through on for the heavens. Here we pick up the conversation with Bruce talking about treaties and the actions of Russia and China. Well, I think it's a good idea anytime the United States talks with any other country, particularly Russia and China. You know, for the last many, 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 many years, well over 20 or more years, every year Russia and China have gone to the United Nations introducing a new treaty because the old treaties, the Outer Space Treaty, the Moon Treaty, are really outdated technologically. And so new treaties are needed to bring in these new uh, weapons technologies that are being developed for space. And so every year, uh, Russia and China have introduced this treaty called PAROS, P-A-R-O-S, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space. And it always passes overwhelmingly in the UN General Assembly in New York usually just the United States and Israel, now and then maybe the Marshall Islands or Ukraine have been brought in to uh, also vote no on it, but it passes overwhelmingly. And then it goes to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva for negotiation. And it is there that the U.S. and Israel really block it. And the U.S. position through Republican and Democrat administrations alike has been that, hey, there's no problem. There are no weapons in space. We don't need a new treaty. But that's the aerospace industry talking. And since the U.S. has begun this encirclement of Russia and China with these so-called missile defense systems that Dave and Linda, I think, have explained pretty well, key elements in U.S. first strike attack planning. Uh, Since the U.S. has been doing this, uh, Russia and China have been saying, you know, we can't afford to to uh, get rid of our retaliatory capability, our nuclear retaliatory capability. It's the only thing we have to keep you from hitting us first. So therefore, until we uh, create a new treaty, a Paros treaty, to ban weapons in space, to ban these new systems, we can't afford to get rid of our nuclear weapons. So nuclear disarmament negotiations are on hold. They're at full stop because of the U.S. moves to take control and domination of the planet and space above us. The other thing I want to briefly uh, mention is mining the sky. 
it's clear to me that there's a link between the space force and mining the sky. And the reason why I believe that is this book that was published by the Congress of the United States some years ago. Uh, it's called Military Space Forces, The Next 50 Years. And I just want to read one quote from this book. It talks about the Earth-Moon gravity well. Imagine a wishing well. Someone is down inside of the wishing well. They're trying to get out, and you're at the top of the well. They can't get out because you control the gravity well. You can, you're on top. And it's the same way, they say, with bases on the moon and with armed space stations on either side of the moon, the United States would be able to control who could get on and off the planet Earth. And so I believe one of the key jobs of this space force will be to create a military infrastructure to essentially control the front gate on and off the planet Earth. And in this book, they talk about this very thing. What if some other country or corporation or rich individual who is not authorized tries to go out and mine the sky? They say, quote, armed forces might lay in, white, uh, might lay in wait at that location to hijack rival shipments upon return. So we're talking piracy here. We're talking the U.S. developing the capability to literally control who can get on and off the planet Earth. Now, this is very destabilizing. It's very dangerous. It's very provocative. But that's what it's really all about. This return to the moon mission that we're hearing a lot about, they say will cost over $100 billion at a time when, look, we have a collapsing economy. So something here has to give. Some years ago, in one of the industry publications called Space News, they ran an editorial that said, look, we've got to be responsible corporate citizens. We've been saying for a long time that this whole space program will be the largest industrial project in the history of the planet Earth, necessitating massive funding. So we've got to be good corporate citizens and come up with a dedicated funding source to pay for it. And they say, we have. And we're now sending our lobbyists to Washington to secure that dedicated funding source. And in this article in Space News, they said it was the entitlement programs that officially in America are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and what's left of the social safety net, which is completely in tatters. So this is why, if you listen closely, as the native people in this country said, put your ear to the railroad tracks and hear the train coming. If you listen closely, you hear these constant proposals to defund and cut uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. So really, we have two trains on a collision course. One is the space warfare, uh, mining the sky program, and the other is human and environmental progress here on the planet Earth. We can't afford both of them. They're heading for a collision course. And so I say to people all the time, we're not asking you to drop what you're doing and you know drop whatever issue you're working on and come work on space, but begin to integrate this into people's consciousness as you do your work. 
Talk about the money, talk about the cost, talk about the provocative nature about it, talk about the U.S. refusal to create a new treaty uh, to ban these weapons in space. One last thing I want to mention is space debris or space junk. Uh, some years ago, I think it was 1989, we held a protest at Cape Canaveral when I was working for the Florida Coalition for Peace and Justice. And we had an Apollo astronaut speak that day, Edgar Mitchell, one of the uh, moonwalkers. And he said that if we ever had a war in space, one time, it would be one and only, because we would create so much space debris orbiting the Earth at 15,000 miles an hour, tiny, tiny pieces as small as a speck of paint and things much bigger. But so much debris would be created that soon it would create a cascading effect. And the International Space Station and all the military and civilian satellites up in space would be crashing into each other, creating essentially, he said, a minefield around the planet Earth. Or he said, think of a piranha-laced river. And that we would not be able to get a rocket off the planet through that minefield and that we would be literally entombed to the earth forever. Also think about today's world when you're watching television, cable television, you're watching Netflix. How are you receiving that signal from satellites? What about your cell phone? What about your ATM banking, uh, traffic signals, uh, weather information? All comes from satellite technology. So if you start blowing everything up in space and creating this cascading effect there by having war in space, literally virtually everything on the earth shuts down. Almost everything goes black, goes dark. And so this is the mindset that these people at the Space Command and the Pentagon are working with. They know these things. Clearly they know it because they're tracking Every day, the satellites, the space station, they're moving them to other orbits to escape uh, uh, space junk that's coming dangerously close. So they're aware of it, but they continue on, continue on with all of these uh, crazy, expensive technology blunders. So this is our challenge, living in this moment of history that we're in, trying to find a way to deal with it. Let me just say, finally, every year in October, we have a week-long event we call Keep Space for Peace Week. Uh, local decentralized uh, protests, community events, educational events, film showings all across the world. This year it'll be October 3rd through 10th. And so we ask people to consider uh, organizing something during Keep Space for Peace Week and help us expand the level of consciousness around the world. Here we have our friends in India working really hard to stop their country from moving into this program. They have 300 million poor people in India living in dire poverty, and their country is now developing anti-satellite weapons. It's crazy, it doesn't make any sense. And it's the same story in many other countries, including here in the United States. So all of us have to try to find ways to help expand the public's consciousness that this space stuff isn't so
fascinating and wonderful after all. I call it pyramids to the heavens. And we, the taxpayers, are the new slaves as these aerospace corporations and rich people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, they're the new pharaohs of our age. Right now, they, they're, they're nearing the time where they can go out and mine the sky. After the taxpayers paid for all the many years of research and development to develop these technologies at NASA and at other agencies. And so now you've noticed in recent years, they've begun privatizing a lot of these missions. During the Obama administration, they did that. Obama signed a law giving uh, wealthy individuals and American corporations the right to go out and mine the sky, which violates the intent, the language, of the uh, Outer Space Treaty and the Moon Treaty that calls the celestial bodies the province of all humankind and says no individual, no country, no corporation can own them, can make land claims on them. But now that the taxpayers have paid all of the freight all these years, now they want to privatize it. And so they're nearing the time that they'll be able to go out and mine the sky. But one thing they say, a big problem, is in order to get to Mars, it takes a year. So they want to cut that time in half. And when you want to bring back uh, supplies to the Earth, you're going to need heavy lift launch power. And for those launches, they want to have nuclear reactors, rockets with nuclear reactors for engines. And they also anticipate having nuclear-powered mining colonies on the Moon and Mars and other celestial bodies. So the nuclear industry that has grown very unpopular here on the planet views space as a new market, and they're very excited about moving into space. This is very dangerous because we know that rockets uh, blow up on occasion. And if you have a release of plutonium or uranium from a launch accident, it could be very, very detrimental to the Earth below. There have been as as Dave mentioned in the beginning, there have been past accidents by both the United States and Russia where plutonium and uranium was released into the atmosphere. And it's been studied by scientists who believe that those accidents were major causes for the increase in cancer around the Earth today. So one thing also to think about is when you're working at the Department of Energy laboratories at Los Alamos, or at the Savannah River plant or other parts of the country that help create these space nuclear devices, they have a very bad record of contamination of workers, local water supplies, and the air. Just one example, when they launched Cassini in 1997 from, from Florida, from the Kennedy Space Center, with 72 pounds of plutonium on board, uh, before they launched it, when they were uh, fabricating the generators, the plutonium generators in New Mexico, they had 244 cases of worker contamination. It was reported by the local newspaper in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So th this is a problem even before you launch these nuclear devices. That was Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, found online at spaceforpeace.org.
Also on this webinar were Professor Dave Webb, Chair of Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK, and Linda Walker, an activist and science educator located in California. We'll have a link up to the entire 90-minute webinar on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 462. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 28, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-News.net and Renard.wordpress.com, that's Hervé Courtois, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, miningawareness.wordpress.com, ckdr.net, wrdw.com, azfamily.com, chicagobusiness.com, nei magazine, windsorstar.com, patch.com, allthingsnuclear.org, sfnewmexican.com, energy.gov, japantimes.co.jp, asahi.com, voanews.com, that's Voice of America, International Association for Protection Against Ionizing Rays, Mesa.int, Green Tech Media, Reuters, and the totally captured by the nuclear industry fools and lapdogs at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Special thanks to Bruce Brinkman for again helping with audio, this time taking it from the War in Space webinar. If you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post, leave a comment, chances are I'll respond to it. But the easiest way to get Nuclear Hot Seat is to sign up to get it delivered via email in your inbox every week. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down if you have to to find the yellow box, and sign up for that one weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. That's the portal. That's the best way to get to me. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's that red button and that green button there, which will allow you to help us keep going. That's at NuclearHotSeat.com. And know that we're always deeply grateful for your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the art of the art of communicating, reminding you that we are all truly in that nuclear hot seat. That's your wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.